everyone. Welcome back to the 240th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a stellar show for you today. We're going to be talking about Wink, maybe taking its final breath, Apple gearing up for the smart home, Google and its attempt to buy Fitbit, perhaps, plus funding for Particle, Microsoft making some big announcements around the IoT Edge. We've got some hacked smart bulbs. We've got researchers boosting Wi-Fi. And we've got a lot of news about small products and services coming to the smart home. So, nope. We also have our sponsor, Nutanix, talking about obstacles to bringing in the IoT and... Our guest this week is Massimo Russo, who is Managing Director and a Senior Partner at BCG. He's going to be talking about the incumbent advantage in the industrial and enterprise IoT. And it is awesome. So let's get started with our show. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Afero. Why do you need the Afero platform? Because you're building multiple smart products at scale. You need end-user experience that amplifies your brand, security and data integrity that you can trust, response times measured in milliseconds, consistent development and technology reuse, all in a single mobile app for all of your devices. This is all built on the fifth largest patent portfolio in IoT. And if you want it all, Afero delivers. So get started at afero.io. That's A-F-E-R-O dot I-O. Okay, Kevin. So much news this week. Mm-hmm. The Verge did some excellent reporting and found out that Wink employees haven't been paid for a couple of weeks. And it looks like a deal to bring financing to Wink and actually to Will I Am's companies has maybe not fallen through, but it's been delayed enough that people are running out of money. Yeah, that's not good. Um, I mean, you combine that with the lack of anything new or news out of Wink for the past, I don't know, at least 18 months. And Let's just call it a response. I mean... Yeah, that's... Yeah, I, I know you've reached out to them uh, multiple times just to see what's what. And yeah, it's radio silence. So people not getting paid, always a bad sign. Wink has not been updating things a good watermark, I think, for the whole health of the smart home is actually, as much as we may hate it, this Google Nest transition. Because if you're awake and functioning in this space, you're probably trying to do something with it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, it's over. It's over. According to The Verge, they spoke to employees under anonymity. Those folks still want to get paid, of course. Payments had been late basically all year, they say. And now it's been, most recently, seven weeks without a paycheck. On the plus side, there's probably some really good smart home people running Mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. Snap those guys up. I Um, agree. And assuming Wink goes away, let's just worst case, we've talked about this before. We've stopped recommending Wink for some time as like the mainstream smart home hub. And smart things is pretty much the go-to, I guess. It's what you got. But maybe we've got something new coming up. We'll talk about it in a minute with Apple. But- Mm. Really, with Wink, I would transition to smart things if you're super nerdy and you want to do that. Plus, if you've already been working with Wink, smart things is not going to be that much more complicated. It's probably too much to jump in on its own. But now that you've been doing Wink for a while, I feel like you can graduate. For the do-it-yourselfers, there are many other options out there. 
Oh, yeah. And we've, we've talked about them before Hub with Attack. Home Assistant, Hubitat. And, yeah, there's, there's a bunch, but that's why I said mainstream. I mean, off the shelf product, smart things is probably it. Maybe the Amazon Echo Plus, you lose one radio, but you, you lose Z Wave. And there's a lot of good Z Wave products out there, but yeah, yeah. It, it is an option. Yep. So maybe though, we'll get something exciting from Apple. <laughs> you didn't really just say that. Okay, I did. I did. The reason I say this is because Bloomberg, which Mark Gurman knows what he's talking about yes, when it comes he does. to Apple. So yes, he does. He says that Apple is hiring a team to work on new smart home software to catch up to Google and Amazon. They also did, you know, a couple small updates to their HomePod. It did not do super well. And Mark Gurman says that Andreas Gal, whose company Silk Labs was acquired by Apple last year. We talked about that. Silk Labs was actually one of the first companies I profiled in my newsletter when I started it up. So Gal's making software. This could happen, maybe? Well, and let's say it does. Let's say it does. I still have an issue in that it's going to be for iOS people only which sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, depending on the month, I guess, because I switch back and forth. So you've already limited your audience. And secondly, or the area they need to work on is, is getting more devices. And Mark reports that Apple has listed about 450 compatible HomeKit devices on its website from third parties, whereas Amazon works with 85,000 smart home products from 9,500 manufacturers. Google has 10,000 devices from 1,000 brands. So there's just that lack of choice that irks me about it. But quality. That's true. always been Apple's thing. Now, I That's will true. say, Apple has budged. And I think it's important to note that like when it launched, it launched with its hardware-centric focus, and people rebelled against it. So remember, well, that you was had to have hardware security. Yeah. Right. It was, it was hardware security, right. They adapted to that. And I'm wondering if – I don't think they're going to go – build like a reference design like Amazon did, you know, or an, a Madam A voice services device, but they are learning and it's possible that they now feel like they could build something. I don't think it'll be interoperable. I do think it could be compelling. Now, I also think that if they're going to rely on Siri to control this, and maybe they won't, maybe they'll do something really stellar and interesting and Apple-y. But if they're relying on Siri, they've got some issues because like yes. the HomePod, they sent out an update with some, you know. This pretty, week. Yeah, this week with pretty small updates, right, Kevin? So, yes, Apple put out a HomePod update uh, for iOS 13.2 just this week. And it was going to add something really key that the HomePod's been missing. And that's multi-user support. So, multiple people, multiple information, kind of like voice match that we have on our other systems. But it started bricking HomePod, so it was pulled before I could actually try and install it, which is actually a good thing because I don't want to brick mine. Yeah, so I mean, one to note here, yay, Apple's returning to HomePod, which it probably needs to do if it's going to have a, a seat at the smart home table. And B, it's looking at multi-user environments, which is clearly what the home is as opposed to a phone, which is, you know, single users. But unfortunately... We don't know how, how much farther to take this. So I, I think this will be something to watch, hopefully, over the next year. And for all do of you, you guys who are dedicated HomeKit fans, yay. Do you think they'll ever move beyond Wi-Fi and Bluetooth? Because that's their system now. I don't think they'll have to. 
I know the hardcore nerds want Z-Wave or Zigbee for sensor products, but I don't think Apple's aiming at those people. And I think there are enough right. products, they're more expensive, but that, mm-hmm. that use Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, so they'll be fine. Okay. Okay. Let's talk more rampant speculation, because <laughs> this week, and maybe by the time you hear this, this will have happened, or maybe it won't have, rumors that Google was trying to buy Fitbit, and Fitbit stock price did go up, not to its original price, but you know, <laughs> up. So, Kevin, I know that we have talked a little bit about like who would buy Fitbit, where, where does Fitbit fit into a mm-hmm. strategy, but what do you think about this? Right. So when we talked about this potential possibility maybe a month ago, because there were some rumors, now it's Reuters is reporting that a bid has been placed. Nothing further. We don't know anything else yet. Back a month ago, though, I thought maybe Amazon because they would get them into a space and get data that they don't have access to. But Google actually is a decent fit. And and I say that because Google fit. I, I mean, I try that software that tracks your activities and your exercises. And I try it once a year and I last about a week. It's terrible compared practically to anything, but especially to Fitbit, which really has the user experience and the data collection and synchronization nailed down. Right. Right. Google also has its Wear OS watches that can collect some of this data, but I don't think this is about that. I think this is about I hope, because Fitbit users love their Fitbits and don't want to have them Googleized. I love I, my Fitbit. Exactly. When you, most Fitbit owners that I know love them, and so much so that they, when they break or a newer model comes out after a long time, they replace their Fitbit with a Fitbit for good reason. So I think this is more about Google getting more access to health data because they're not getting it through Wear OS today. It just isn't happening. And Google Fit, which you can even use on your smartphone to track your steps, it's just it's just crap. Yeah. Uh, Every so, now and then Google tries to get me to use it. I'm like, why, no, Google? don't, don't. I mean, look, it's just not in their wheelhouse. But Fitbit has nailed it, as I've said. So my thought, and I wrote a blog post about this, is that maybe the Google Fit software becomes Google Fitbit. Who knows? Where they integrate all of the Fitbit smarts into the Google Fit app. But they leave the Fitbit devices mainly alone because it's got such great brand recognition, such it works so well. It's so much more enjoyable to use than a Wear OS device. And I know Fitbit owners would probably be happy to see that happen. Additionally, maybe it even turns out that they want to tie this in with their Google Health initiative, which I actually think is a very good initiative because right now they don't have like FDA approved devices that can send data to Google Health. Apple actually has some FDA devices that they're capturing well, they medical health data. Out, Alphabet spun out their super super medical device company, Verily. Yes. So that makes sense. They have that whole team over there doing that. Right. But you still have to get data. And if you've got happy users with devices gathering data, my thought is leave the Fitbits alone, Google, and maybe subsidize them. Say, guess what? If you opt in to give us all of your medical data, we'll take 25 bucks off your Fitbit. Oh my God. You just struck terror into my heart. I would not do it. And that's fine, but that's okay. You could do it the way Amazon does it with the Kindles. You either want ads or you don't. You Most pay ten. Do the ads. Well, they do, and that's that's a totally different decision, obviously, because you're getting information as opposed to giving information, especially health information. But if you could get the already relatively inexpensive Fitbits cheaper, I think some people would do that if it's anonymous, secure data. Going and to you, big. And you did this veneer of helping the cause. 
So oh, well, that's the donate key. Yes. your data to science. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So a lot of people are not happy with the potential of Google buying Fitbit. I think it could be a good thing. All right. I like it. I, I will hope that your vision comes to pass if it comes to pass. And if Google doesn't buy Fitbit. Then I will. I no. worry. <laughs> I love my Fitbit, but I'm also like, this is not mm -hmm. an awesome business. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. what will happen next? Okay. Speaking of awesome businesses, Particle, which is a company I followed for, I don't know, however long it's been around. It's from the beginning of the Internet of Things hype that we've talked about. They have raised $40 million in a Series C round. Particle makes development boards that tie back to the Particle cloud. So they basically make it easy to build a connected device. Their boards support Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, various forms of uh, cellular connectivity. They've been doing this forever. And what's happened is... Their customers, like Jacuzzi is one of their customers, they will buy these boards, put them in their products, and then if those products do well, boom, Particle sells a whole bunch more particles. And so what Zach Sapala, the CEO of Particle, told me during a call was that the average size of their customer has grown by 70%, which means two things. One, go Particle, you're doing well, but two, companies are actually adopting connectivity into their products and solutions in a way that's becoming mass market. So mm -hmm. that's great. I'm excited about that. Uh, Zach also gave me one other little tidbit that I thought was really interesting, which is he thought when they launched their cellular options, that customers that had products that were in a Wi-Fi range would choose the Wi-Fi because it was cheaper but they actually ended up choosing the cellular options more often. So roughly half of their connected products that use cellular are actually in range of a Wi-Fi network. So things like the jacuzzi hmm. hot tubs, they actually use cellular because the jacuzzi people were like, we don't want to make customers deal with Wi-Fi. So I thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit that that does have development, like has applications for other people building products. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I'm surprised by it, but as I think about it out loud, you get, as they said, the ease of use, not having to deal with Wi-Fi. You also have the potential for products that you hadn't even imagined yet because you don't have to be limited by Wi-Fi. So maybe Jacuzzi says, hey, if you've got a 20-acre property and you want your Jacuzzi in the middle of it, you don't have Wi-Fi, look, we have a module that'll work for that. I mean, huh. Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> huh. Okay. Huh. Well, no, yeah, I didn't know that tidbit about the cellular until you mentioned it. You probably also have, um, well, you obviously have more range. Uh, huh, I'm leading yeah. into something with this, and we'll okay. talk about it in a Go couple, ahead. not now, oh. in a few weeks. So everyone remember oh. this, because in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about something that ties right back to this. So hmm. jot down that stat or keep it in your brain that people, manufacturers building consumer products and apparently industrial products and enterprise products are choosing cellular yeah. over Wi-Fi, even in places where there is Wi-Fi. Does Particle make money by folks using their Particle Cloud? Like, is there a subscription for that as well? There is a subscription for additional services, and then yeah. there is the boards. So, yes. Good. All right. Let's talk about Microsoft. This week, Microsoft made a big announcement at, I believe it was the IoT Solutions World Congress, blah, blah, in Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> Barcelona. Uh, people were very excited. I didn't go. I just, uh, no, yeah. just no. But 
Microsoft is really investing in the IoT edge. And this is really important because Microsoft is actually, you know, I don't want to say it's leading AWS, but it is a far more credible solution with big companies than AWS has been so far. The, the legacy people, they, you know, they're all Microsoft and have been, and that's that. So, yes. In 2018, they did announce that they were going to invest $5 billion in IoT and quote the intelligent edge. So, you know, we kind of expect something from this. And what they've done now is they've announced a bunch of new things. They've done some 11 new industry-focused application templates in real estate, retail, healthcare, government, and energy. And those are basically, we talk about this all the time, but normal people do not want to build IoT applications from scratch. They want something that they can just take and A use. blueprint or something, absolutely. So that's what this is. They're also allowing people to build custom user roles, which is really important in the enterprise. So you get fine-grained access to control data and actions. So maybe, Kevin, you could see the temperature in your office, but I'm not going to let you control it. Or maybe I'll let you change it by like one or two degrees, but that's about it. Hmm. Um, and then they talked about a new pricing model coming in 2020 to help as usage scales up, it'll be more predictable. We'll see what that actually looks like. But lots of stuff, too much to go into here, and then lots of fun use cases that most of which we've kind of heard from, but, you know, still good. Yeah. I, I would say everybody who's interested, definitely read the link that we'll have in the show notes because there is a lot in here, more than we can cover, and uh, there's some impressive improvements here. Yeah. So go Microsoft. I, I kind of call yeah. this Microsoft's making its IoT products legit. And it really is. So, yay. And it's not just because I moved to Seattle, because AWS is also in Seattle. So, you know, it's not regionalism here. <laughs> okay. And now it's time to talk about innovations, specifically boosting Wi-Fi range. Kevin? Yeah. This is specific to IoT devices because the experiment, I guess I would say, this is from researchers at BYU, Washington University, and the University of Utah. They've got a software upgrade for Wi-Fi networks that essentially can boost Wi-Fi over 60 additional meters, but only for IoT devices. And the reason why is because you cannot send a lot of data in this solution that they have engineered, literally uh, a single bit per second, right? One bit, eight bytes, doesn't sound like much. But a sensor may just be maybe the state of a bulb or something could fit into that one bit. It definitely makes sense for IoT type devices. So apparently they're using something called the on-off noise power communication protocol that they've developed. So I don't know anything about it. I haven't read their research paper, but they've gotten up to 67 meters further boost by using this technique or this protocol. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And That's long. Yes. I was like, that could cover your jacuzzi in the middle of your 20-acre That's property. That's right. Well, there we go. Acres to meters, never mind. I have to get the property in the jacuzzi, so we have time to figure that out. All right. We'll work on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we also have a security story. Actually, we have two Of course stories. we do. <laughs> exactly. It's a day ending in Y. So this is based off of a research paper that's really interesting. It's from the University of Texas, and it talks about information leakage via light bulbs, specifically smart lights. Mm. The paper does a lot more than that. It's not just smart lights. It's basically, there's several, 
I hesitate to call them attacks because they're almost just more information gathering techniques. So it's like being able to infer what video is being watched by looking at the light from your television screen. So I'm like, is that a smart light bulb thing? No. Is that something that that's basically like an AI based attack inference? It's not an attack. But they do talk about being able to use smart lights to exfiltrate information and to do it remotely. And I'm going to be honest, it's a 28-page research paper. I will link to it in the story, but... Weekend reading. It's tough. It's hard. (laughs) Basically, what they're talking about is using smart bulbs to... You can remotely control them for up to 50 meters, and it basically lets them control the invisible wave spectrum. So things that you're, basically you can control these lights to flash, we'll call it subliminal messages to your appliances and <laughs> smartphones. I, they're not subliminal, but we don't see we, them. We can't see them, right. And so it could actually use those infrared wavelengths to access the data on your network. Scary. It is scary. It feels, I mean... I would love someone smarter than I am to read this paper and be like, well, is this, it's going to be computationally intensive to do this. That doesn't mean it won't happen. And once someone's done it and has the right algorithms, I can assume you could buy it on the the dark web for, I don't know, (laughs) relatively cheap. But yes, I should just tell you to read the paper because it's it's (laughs) way involved, way more involved than I want. This is not a project we're going to undertake. Exactly. Yes. So let's talk about another security threat. A little bit more, more fun. No, more appalling. I don't know. Yes, appalling. I'm going to preface it by saying, don't connect your smartphone to any car that you rent. Okay. Having said that, a an individual by the name of Masamba Sinclair did just that with a rented Ford Expedition that he got from Enterprise back in May. He used the Ford Pass app, which I have on my car, which is a Ford, but it's my car, so I don't mind doing it. He was excited that he could unlock the, you know, the car and start it up and remotely see where it was when he parked it and all that. The thing is, he returned the car and he realized he still had control. So he was in the app and he was able to see where it was. Now, the next renter has the car, not him, and he can see it. He can unlock the doors. He could remotely start it. He contacted Ford, at least on Twitter, on a regular basis for the first couple of weeks and has continued to do so with just with less frequency. It has now been five months and he still has access to this rental car information and can control it. And even my Tesla signs me out like once a month. So right. right. <laughs> like, and this is actually whenever I get a rental car and I connect my phone to it, I always disconnect it at the end. I always have it forget. I don't even connect it because I don't want that data, my contacts and other things left behind even. Oh, I'm just talking about Bluetooth. I'm not talking well, about anything fancy. Well, a lot of the, the way the systems are now, at least with Ford Sync, it pretty much sucks up all, sucked up all my contacts as soon as I made the Bluetooth connection. That was it because that's the whole purpose of it. Oh, my gosh. Yes. But again, it's my car. I didn't mind that. That's why I would never do it on a rental car. Just use your phone and navigation and whatever you need. Yeah, no luxury for you. And really, rental agencies have been called out before for not having a de-authentication for the electronics Mm -hmm. of the car. So get on that, Hertz, Avis, whoever else is out there, Enterprise. All right. 
it's time for all of the little news bits that we didn't have time to talk about. So first up, Google Home gets a centralized feed rolling out to Android and iOS. Kevin, do you have it yet? I don't. I do not. I saw some screenshots on 9to5Google, and I love how it looks, so I'm very disappointed. I just checked before the show. I do not have an update. And what does this show us? It kind of aggregates things a little bit more in the app. Uh, It's got a cleaner look. Google's been really trying to apply its cards user interface to everything. You're getting the card look view. There's a home history that lets you filter what's happened in the past by device or alert. So it's becoming more of a more of a hub-based interface than it is today. Got it. All right. And scouring through the FCC, we see that IKEA has filed with them for a, oh, here we go, trad-free shortcut trad-free. button. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this looks like a, it looks like a smart button. Um, someone actually <laughs> sent us a question about smart buttons. And at the yes. time, IKEA did not, it was bedside table lamps. With trot-free bulbs, yes. Yeah. This will let you create smart home scenes. Right now, trot-free lights actually come with a little round controller that lets you control the lights themselves. So this looks more scenish, although they also have a Spotify controller that they showed off. And I'm not sure how many little round pucks or square pucks I want on my nightstand, but here's another. Um, It's not out yet. and Should be soon, though, given that it got its FCC certification. That's usually like the last hurdle before it appears and we hear an announcement. Exactly. So look out for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what else do we have, Kevin? We've got Tile Bluetooth Tracker integration with the Google Assistant, which is actually really, really cool. <gasps> Google, where, yeah, are my, I, where are my keys? Yes. That's literally what you can do. So if you set up the Tile Tracker to say, this one is my keys, and you attach it to your keychain, you can then say, hey, Google, where are my keys? And it'll tell you. They don't. You can ring your keys, you know, make a noise from the tile. If you have the tile, it makes noise. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. Now I'm going to go buy those stickers and stick them on everything. Hmm. And Amazon adds a new wake-up lighting and sleep timer feature for Madam A. I should try this because I'm having trouble waking up in the morning. But what oh. does what does this do, Kevin? Before this came out, you could use Madam A to control your lights, and you could use Madam A to set timers. This lets you put those two features together, so that way your bedroom lamp could go on at dawn, for example, to start waking you up, which is nice. You can set wake up lighting and sleep timers for all of your lights. You can say set a sleep minute timer with lights for thirty minutes, etc. Can also brighten or dim your smart lights with routines, which is something apparently you could not do. Yeah, because it was just like you could turn it on, but now I could set an alarm for like seven thirty and then have it gradually wake me up, like that Philips Hue bulb thing or the right. Philips Hues. Okay, cool. Yeah, you get you get a range of five minutes to one hour to have them gradually dim or brighten. Nice. Okay. And just so people know, the Amazon Echo Bud reviews came out this week. I have yet to try them. I don't know if I'm super excited about them, but I'm still holding out for the glasses. But people like the way they sound. And they're sweat resistant. They have five hours of talk time. They let you automatically talk to Madam A. And they're only $130. That's not too bad, considering that Apple just came out with their AirPod Pros yesterday. Uh, They're going to be $250, I believe. You're not going to be talking to Madam A. You're going to be talking to Siri. 
And this doesn't really do much like to replace Madam A on the phone, but I never use Madam A on the phone. It's a horrible user experience for me. So I'm kind of excited to see if this is faster. Is it horrible because it's, it's so the, the, slow? Ah, uh, okay. Because so this, this will rely on that. I was thinking if it's a visual thing, at least the audio in the earbuds would actually help with that. But if it's too slow, this is not going to speed it up. Ah! Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why mine's so slow. Remember when I had that Amazon smart home person come to my house? He yes. was surprised at how slow it was too. And he's like, maybe it's because you have so many devices. It could be. But, I but I've since switched my phone and eliminated a lot of my devices, and it's still really laggy. And I'm going to stick with Google on this one. In fact, I may take a look at those Pixel Buds when they come out next year. Yeah, you should. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now it is time for the IoT Podcast Hotline. Da-da-da-da! This IoT Podcast Hotline is sponsored by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. You can learn more at afero.io. Okay, this is Halloween. Dun-dun, this is Halloween, this is Halloween. I'm so sorry, oh, you guys. Oh, boy. But... It's also the end of the month. So next week's episode, we will have our winner for the month of October. They will win a WISE sensor kit. If you are listening to this on Thursday morning, you still have until midnight on the 31st to enter to win. And otherwise, you can still call us and leave a question and you'll be entered to win next month's prize. Call us by Halloween. Take a break from the kids. Exactly. 512-623-7424 is how you reach us. And now, let's go to this week's question. Hi, this is Stephen from Dallas. My question is, is there a device that I can put in my pool, float around in my pool like a floater, that would uh, allow me to tell the temperature through either smart things or Wi-Fi, and I could ask Alexa or Google the temperature of the pool? Okay, Stephen. I have, oh, I have <laughs> a range <news>. of choices. <laughs> I have a wide variety of choices. So I did find that there are tons of floating pool sensors that are not at all smart, but are relatively inexpensive. So for like 25 bucks, you can pop a floating temperature thing in with a, a monitor that just sits by your window and you can look at your window and see how cold your pool is. I felt that that was not what you were after since you wanted all this integration. We may disappoint you. Because getting that <laughs> level of integration is going to be expensive and possibly hard. Yes. If you go expensive, we found the FIN, the P-H-I-N, Smart Water Care Monitor for Pools. And actually, a friend of mine has this and loves it. But it is $349. And this does... But, but it does a lot more than just temperature. Yes. This does a ton of stuff related to the chemicals in your pool. So it's continuously monitoring the water pH, and it alerts you when you need to adjust the chemicals, lets you know exactly how many to add. This is what my friend loves. And, and it works with any of the chemicals that you can buy, any brand. So, yay. <laughs> well, but it's $350. And again, you're getting more than temperature. You're only going to get that in an app, though. You're not going to be able to ask a smart assistant what the temperature is. Yeah, we haven't seen integration with Google or Madame A. Right. So, the bottom line here is you could do alerts on the app. 
It's got way more functionality. It works with salt, chlorine, bromine. I don't even know what that is. Hot tubs. And I mean, it looks pretty cool, but yeah. it's definitely- Do you want to spend that much money is the question. I, you know, pools are expensive. So I say- That's true. Probably. Probably. Um, <laughs> probably. There's another cheaper option that does have some smart assistant integrations, although it, yeah, gonna, you might have to do a little work. Yeah. So we found a Slovenian company called Cubino, Q-U-B-I-N-O, and they have basically, I'll call it a module. It's a module you can stick in your, your pool's motor housing, and this module is a Z-Wave control thing. You can use it to remotely control your pool pumps. And then there's an any lights as well. And your lights, depending on how many things you want to control, you're going to go with like a, a one relay or two or three relay. And then they have a sensor probe that attaches to that that will also measure the water temperature. This is a Z-Wave device. It works with smart things. What's unclear is how well the temperature sensing works with smart things. So this does say that the the actual modules themselves work really well. And the reason we really don't know is because this is not a natively supported SmartThings device, but because it has Z-Wave, uh, some folks on the SmartThings community put together a device handler for the Cubino line of products. And according to the author of the Groovy code that wrote the device handler, he says temperature should show. So there you have it. And if you tie it into SmartThings, then you can tie it into Google or Madam A and And it's less expensive too because that oh, yes. that uh how much was that relay? The relay was about forty five to fifty dollars on Amazon and the temperature pro was fourteen ninety nine. That's a lot cheaper than three hundred and fifty. But it is gonna be a lot more work. But you get your voice assistant. So those seem to be your options at this moment in time. Let me know if I've missed something because we get a lot of questions about smart pools and it's mm -hmm. not an area that I spend a lot of time on because I don't have a pool. So there you go. All right. Well, y'all stay tuned for our guest, Massimo Russo, who is managing director and a senior partner at Boston Consulting Group. He's talking about how incumbents can use their existing advantage in building out smart platforms. And we also have a conversation about how startups can work with big companies. So all of this and more await you after a message from our sponsor. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from this week's podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Nutanix. Nutanix software unifies private, public, and distributed clouds. Plus, it empowers IT to deliver applications and data that power their businesses. Now, I have Sachem Vagani here to share a bit about the obstacles facing the IoT. Sachem, IoT is projected to be more than a trillion dollar market by 2025. What are the obstacles in the way of that actually happening? Stacy, there's two kinds of obstacles, technical and non-technical. On the technology side, IoT is a combination of many different technology challenges. Challenges around containerizing applications or using advanced data processing concepts like AI and data analytics. It's about application and device security at literally planet scale and so on and so forth. These technical challenges translate to non-technical challenges for an organization as well. They feel stretched in terms of the type of talent that they need to onboard to make an IoT project successful. 
they need a combination of talents around Kubernetes and TensorFlow and data processing and security and so on, which stretches their budgets on a given IoT project or even stretches the amount of time and resources they need to dedicate to them. Got it. I have heard that's a problem. So what is Nutanix working on to get rid of these obstacles? We are up to many different things, but just to give you some concrete examples, in one instance, we created an AI service on the edge to remove the complexity of end users having to deal with many different kinds of AI hardware ranging from ASICs to FPGAs to GPUs, such that they can focus more on the business logic and on the machine models that they can train and less on how those models need to be operationalized in production. In another instance, we worked with uh, many of our industry partners, ISVs and systems integrators, to create an IoT application library, which provides our end users end-to-end working IoT applications in many different verticals, such that they can get started on reasonably complex IoT projects, literally in one click. And in a different instance, we created an IoT trial for edge computing infrastructure, all hosted in the cloud so that people can start creating enterprise IoT applications on the edge without having to deploy a single device. Nice. That's very comprehensive. So where can our listeners go to find out more about Nutanix? Stacey, we'd welcome your listeners to come visit us at Nutanix.com slash IoT and even sign up for a free trial. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Massimo Russo, who is a managing director and senior partner at the Boston Consulting Group. Hi, Massimo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Stacey. How are you? I am excellent. So I'm having you on the show because you wrote a really great report about kind of the future of industrial companies and the incumbents in the industrial IoT. And I thought it was a really smart look at how things might shake out as everybody in the tech world is kind of glomming on to this idea of industrial IoT as money. And the people in the old school industrial world are like, hey, if we apply tech to our problems, we could actually make things more efficient. And what sparked your interest in this? Well, you know, I've been actually working with industrial clients for many years. And these are companies that manufacture, produce products, and sell them to other companies. So more of a B2B world than business to consumer. The question that has emerged for many of the companies is how do I leverage the IoT to generate data from my products and then help either make my products better or make my customers more productive or offer new services that are based on software and data to my customers and therefore hopefully also grow the top line expand the portfolio of value that I can deliver to my clients. And what I've seen is that companies are starting to look at the B2C world, and obviously they see Facebook, they see Amazon, Google, and they start thinking about, wow, you know, these companies are so highly valued. They have vibrant digital ecosystems. Um, how can we transform ourselves into, rather than an old school manufacturing company, into you know, a digitally driven ecosystem of software solution providers? And so as they try to do that, they've been going on a journey to build new capabilities, hire new talent, and also in some cases have to work with startups uh, in a different way than they're used to. And they're finding it quite challenging. And so that's the topic we've been exploring 
is how can uh, what we call incumbents or traditional manufacturers really leverage IoT for, for business success and competitive advantage. And you found something that I think surprised a lot of people. You found that incumbents actually have the advantage, and a lot of that advantage comes from their ownership of the the infrastructure, the process, and the data that that generates. And I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on why you think that the big old school industrial players are, I don't know if it's a win or lose here, but are winning? Absolutely. Well, I think of it more as an entitlement, that it's, it's theirs to lose, essentially. They still have to execute well. They have to build new capabilities. So I'm not suggesting that it doesn't come with its challenges. But, but to be a bit more specific, if we think about many of the IoT-based use cases, you know, they are predictive maintenance or optimizing customers' operations by taking data coming from equipment and analyzing it and providing insight to the customers. And it really, that, that application-specific knowledge is something that the incumbents have. They may not have the digital capabilities, the data scientists, the software engineers, but in theory, you know, they can either hire that or team with uh, startups to, to build those capabilities. But there are really five advantages that we see the incumbents having. You know, one is they have access to real-time data coming off of devices that they can analyze. And in some cases where, where data is very perishable, they can refresh that data. The second is they have long historical data sets, so they can backtest some of the models and they can develop the algorithms that have a high predictive value to, d- to deliver more value to the end customer. They have deep relationships with customers, so they understand the business process, the needs of the end customers, if they are a customer-centric organization, but they certainly have those relationships that they can build off of. In many cases, these large capital equipment providers, they're producing a product that is a very essential piece of machinery. If we think about robots in a automotive manufacturing plant or a large paper machine in a paper manufacturing company, these are expensive, critical products. And so again, the supplier of that product has the knowledge and the relationship and can affect how that product is operating. The product itself directly impacts the operations of the customer. So this is an example where if you, uh, again, are delivering a control system in in an industrial setting, you have the ability to control and and change the parameters of the process. So you have the ability to affect the customer operation, what we call closing the loop. So in theory, if the incumbent can, the, the equipment supplier can build up the capability, they have access to the data, they can analyze that data, they have the relationship with the customers to change the business process at the customer, and potentially they can close the loop and and on a real-time basis start controlling the way the customer's operations are are being executed. And that really is a very powerful, if you like, virtuous cycle that the incumbent can access. An example would be, let's say, John Deere that's working with farmers They have the ability to both collect sensor information from their equipment, then provide that data to the farmer in a way that allows them to analyze it. And then the farmer can download machine settings or fertilizer prescriptions to improve the yield of the field. And then the equipment itself is smart to be able to set a number of parameters to apply the fertilizer only where it's needed. And so that's an example of you know, a farmer being able to leverage the K2 
connected piece of farming equipment on all the analytics to close the loop and improve the yield on their farm. And there are a number of examples like that in the B2B space. I'm glad that you use John Deere because you've mentioned this a couple times, but one of the things that you seem to hit on incumbents needing to do is to reach out and work with startups. I think that's probably a good thing in this case. It's probably also very unfamiliar to a lot of them. And John Deere is a wonderful example because they have acquired several startups uh, in machine learning, in computer vision spaces, but they've also set up a resource center in San Francisco so they can get ideas from the startup community located there. And I, I think that's a really interesting way for them to go about it. And I think for a lot of the incumbents, it's very scary to think about how to engage with startups because their whole business is you know, hundreds of years old, it's moving slow, it's building reliability and startups are, they're scary. So how do you recommend that incumbents look at working with startups? And then what do you recommend for startups to make themselves more attractive to work with incumbents? You know, Stacey, that's a great question. And there are, of course, startups is a very broad swath of companies. What I would think of is there are a lot of capabilities that startups bring that are complementary to what the more traditional incumbent, you know, slow-moving manufacturers have. In particular, companies that are building a platform like John Deere, they can invite startups to build solutions on their platforms. So uh, we see this actually happening more and more. And this is to your question, the future of competition may actually be companies that can successfully develop a broad set of partnerships, including startups, that develop software and analytic solutions leveraging the data that they collect. And that is a way of enhancing the value of the solution that they're providing. There's an example of a global building equipment company, and they actually looked at all the different use cases that they can solve with their equipment and their IoT platform and analytics, and they decided to focus on a core set of 40 or so out of 120 and the other 80, they are partnering with a variety of different startup companies, not only startup, but even open source platforms to build solutions that will be part of that ecosystem and platform. So I would very much encourage the more traditional manufacturing companies to think about the types of products and services that are software and data enabled that will enhance value of their product, say, like in the John Deere example, if there is a solution that allows a farmer to make a better decision on a particular seed, you know, that can be a third party that provides that, that solution. And actually nurturing that ecosystem of startups and then having them be part of your platform and your offering is, is a way to build a much greater value proposition for the incumbent. But maybe more specifically, the way companies can do that is establish a, uh, an in-house venture capital team. You know, we see that quite often. And to plug into the startup community and be scanning and sensing what are all the different startups out there that could be enhancing the value of our own ecosystem, even if they not so much directly competing, but more in a co-opetition model. Uh, I think certainly traditional manufacturing companies need to develop that capability. And we are seeing that. If you look at the funding of industrial or B2B IoT companies, the corporate venture arms are incredibly active, more active than sometimes even the traditional venture arms. If you are a company in trying to engage in that model, what are some, I guess, best practices, warning signs? I know that when I talk to startups, they're worried about taking corporate venture money because it can actually determine 
you know, the course of their product development. It might interfere with the kind of customers they can win. So that is a very real concern. And I think that probably, I don't know if it dampens their chance of success or what. For startups, it can be very valuable to have a strategic investor that is also a large customer of that startup solutions. It instantly brings credibility to the startup if they have a large customer. So uh, again, for example, GE Equity would do this very actively where they would work with the various GE business units in the past and uh, find opportunities to invest in startups that would be used by the GE businesses. And there was a bit of a virtuous cycle, but where the valuation of that startup would go up simply because GE was an investor and a customer. Um, so there certainly can be significant value from a strategic corporate investor. I do think it needs to be a bit of an arm's length relationship and allow the startup to continue to operate you know, quite independently. So having a board seat for the startup is, is fine, but the startup still needs to be able to pursue their market. So it really Ultimately, it does depend on the, the nature of the corporate venture relationship, but there's, there, there can be significant benefit for startups to have strategic investors that are active in their end market. And there are some of these large industrial traditional companies that, as I mentioned, really know their markets and the verticals that they play in. And that gets to one of the big challenges, I think, as incumbents, as startups, as everyone is playing in this ecosystem when you're all working together, but also still trying to, to make your own money, how do you work and assign value to different pieces of this ecosystem? And this will probably get a little into some of the monetization strategies, which we'll talk about. But I feel like that's really the unanswered question that companies are kind of trying to face right now. Absolutely. And getting it right is critical because you, you want to make sure that your ecosystem is vibrant and attracts many contributors. And so there are different models uh, for startups to be part of an ecosystem. There can be a revenue share. There can be a straight that the platform itself can be establishing a, a basis for software as a service with different subscription capability. So there are a number of different ways that startups can be part of an ecosystem and monetize their service offering. But if you are the incumbent and you are trying to monetize some of the IoT investments that you're making, there are a number of different business models. One is as the equipment provider and as a designer of the equipment, you have intimate knowledge of how the equipment operates and you can create a digital twin of that equipment. And that's particularly relevant in areas where, let's say, machine learning algorithms may not apply to or as easily to develop a predictive algorithm, whether a piece of equipment is going to fail. But if you have a digital twin and you can connect the physical equipment to the digital twin and you understand when the physical equipment is starting to behave differently than the digital twin, you can predict when it's going to fail. And so companies are just starting to think about how do I therefore sell my digital twin as well as the actual physical product. And there's a, a few different models to do that. The other is you can provide a marketplace for the data that your equipment is generating. The margins tend to be lower if you're just selling raw data, but if you are making the data available with some additional insight, so for example, uh, we see in the telematics space that logistics companies are trying to aggregate their data to create an indicator of economic health, like you know how, much, how many goods are being shipped, and therefore we can create an economic indicator associated with that. That's another way of adding insight to the data and moving beyond just brokering straight data and selling indexes or indicators that can be used by 
financial services companies, let's say. So there are a number of different models. I can't, won't cover all of them, but we had about nine different models of how companies are monetizing their IoT investments and businesses. Got it. So let's zero in on one of those things for a moment there, because I am fascinated by digital twins. I think it's an important concept. We see a lot of companies pushing forth with digital twin packages. You mentioned in your report some interesting monetization strategies associated with that. I would love to talk about this idea of, I think it was licensing digital twins. Absolutely. The observation is, especially with equipment that is in the field and gets maintained, you know, there's always a lot of documentation on what is the configuration of that equipment. And tracking that configuration can be quite cumbersome and paper intensive and such. So, for example, let's take a, a ship and a ship is maintained and over time it may drift from the way it was originally delivered and the types of equipment that is on that ship will, will differ over time. So it's the as manufactured or even as designed, as, as built and as, as delivered and then as maintained while it's in the field. And having a digital twin that is connected, this is where IoT comes in, connected to the actual asset and as you service that ship, the digital twin is updated. So you always have a representation of the actual product in use. Now, to provide that as a service is tremendously valuable for the ship operator because you always have an up-to-date model of the, of the ship. And if you need to develop maintenance tasks, you, know, you can do that off of the digital twin based on an accurate representation of the physical asset. And that is a service that can be provided, if you're the shipbuilder, you can provide that, that service to the ship operator as a licensed software model. And we, we actually know of this happening today with the Navy that is licensing a digital twin for some ships that it's sourcing for exactly this purpose. So it takes off their hands the need to maintain all the paperwork around the ship, and it's all digitized and provided from, as a third-party service. The other benefit is essentially, you know, you can also provide predictive maintenance services or other aftermarket services where you are monitoring the equipment in use. And then if you know that it's going to require spare parts, it's starting to deviate from its design performance. It's going to break down. You need to deliver a spare part. You can do that proactively. And so that's another service that could be monetized, licensed to the user of that equipment on a service contract basis. So companies are really just starting to think about this because it locks in the customer and it allows them to also monitor the equipment in use and therefore feed that back into their engineering teams to improve the future product design. Um, and because they're using a digital twin, you don't need a tremendous amount of historical data to predict when the equipment is going to fail. You're not using a machine learning algorithm. You're essentially using a digital representation of that physical product and running those models and then seeing when they start to deviate. And that allows the, the OEM to leverage the knowledge of the equipment or the end customer plant and build a digital twin and, and continue to add value to that customer beyond the equipment sale. Awesome. That does bring up questions of intellectual property. I look at something like this and I'm like, wow, that'd be a great way to get data on a particular product and maybe, I don't know, 3D print your own parts or, or do something like that. And you already addressed the issue of lock-in, which as a customer, they may look at that and go, eh, it feels fraught. Let's go big picture. Let's end the call on this idea of how do we know, I guess, when this transition has occurred and what a successful company will look like when they come out of the end of this transition? There are 
couple of ed states. First, the traditional incumbent manufacturers will need to partner with technology companies to deliver these, these platforms that will enable some of these future services and solutions. And we actually see that happening with companies like Airbus and Palantir and Amazon and VW. You know, they're starting to partner up where the traditional incumbents realize, I'm not going to build an IoT platform for, with all the technology components, but I'm going to need to partner with a technology provider to have that as a base, and then I'm going to build a number of vertical-specific applications on, on top of that. The second is companies will need to make sure that they have access to the data. So to your point around data rights, and that's a great question because it's something that the uh, manufacturers and the customers are trying to figure out exactly who owns that data. And if it's ambiguous today, it needs to be clarified for the future. And, the, and in general, customers are willing to give the manufacturer access to the data if the manufacturer can provide a value-added service. So being clear about that gives the manufacturer the data they need to deliver these products and services. I think this notion of how do you attract a broad set of providers that are going to be part of your ecosystem and leverage your platform is one that you know you, you, you asked. I think that's going to be critical in the future because companies are not going to be competing necessarily just in the traditional value chain and supply chain, but in a much more loosely coupled ecosystem partnering with startup companies, tech companies, also open source solution providers. And so this notion of competing in ecosystems will be critical. And this competing both in the physical and in the digital world. So the importance of digital twins, capturing the data, and then essentially being able to go from physical to digital and the types of services and solutions that you provide, that really does enhance the relationship between the manufacturer and the customer and creates a very sticky relationship and being able to do that effectively will be critical. So as I look ahead, I would say that the traditional manufacturing companies, they'll need to build capabilities in data platforms, analytics, data science, developing their software solutions, partnering with software companies and startups to enhance the ecosystem, and being able to build compelling value propositions that leverage both digital and physical worlds. Awesome. I will look forward to this and hopefully, hopefully it will come to pass. Thank you for coming on the show this week, Massimo. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 